Just before Federal Parliament ended its summer recess for 2018, the Assistance and Access Bill, otherwise known as the Decryption or Encryption Bill, was passed by both Houses of Parliament. A wide range of stakeholders, including AI Group, have expressed concern about the implications of this legislation. We'll be discussing today what this means for broader industry and why you should be more aware about this if you're not already. We'll be hearing from Patrick Fair, partner at Baker McKenzie and a legal expert in IT, telecommunications, broadcasting, privacy and IP law, among other things. Patrick is also heavily engaged on this bill and a partner of the Alliance for a Safe and Secure Internet. AR Group is also a partner. Joining Patrick is Charles Wang, AI Group's own digital capability and policy lead. I'm Tony Melville, Head of Communications at AI Group. To begin the discussion, let's start with what this encryption bill, or legislation as it is now, is all about. Welcome, Patrick and Charles. Hi, Tony. Um, well, the legislation is all about expanding the powers of national security agencies and our police forces to the point uh, to enable them to require assistance um, in fact, a list of specified acts and things from uh, service providers, facility providers, device manufacturers, um, carriers and carriage service providers so that uh, they can um, fulfill their mission. So it's very broadly expressed, but the sorts of things they might require are um, information about how your system works so they know where to deliver a warrant, um, information um, about uh, messages being carried by the, your system or information stored on your system and they might want you to build something or turn off um, an, an authentication or an encryption system so that they can get access to those messages. The legislation is not about actually handing over the information. They'll still need a warrant or an authority to get the content. It's about um, making uh, providers cooperate with law enforcement and national security so that they can potentially manipulate the way the service works to facilitate access to the messages. This became a huge political hot potato in the last week of Parliament and a lot of people were surprised it finally got through at the end of the day. Why is it so controversial? It's very controversial because it's so aggressive um, and also it has extraterritorial operation which seems to go further than um, just about any other law we've got. Um, it's very aggressive because uh, it can make um, the providers do things that they would not otherwise do. Um, and um, I suppose, uh, let me see if I can go through the layers. One layer is um, it's controversial because there's no confidence that the sorts of manipulation or information sharing that might be required won't damage the way the services operate and undermine encryption and security for a wider the wider community. Um, you know, there was this famous case of the WannaCry virus actually originating in the NSA, and we're worried that if national security or uh, a police force requires a backdoor to be built or requires software to be changed or manipulated so that it's possible to get access, that that will then undermine the system if it gets out and you know, require um, and damage other people's confidence in their services. That's one element. Another element is that it attacks um, everybody in the, in the um, stack. So it's not um, just the people who are providing the service, but it's also everybody supporting them the facility manufacturer, the software author, the service providing the updates, the services providing the connectivity, the people manufacturing components that might be sold 
in a device which is going to be installed in Australia. Um, that's an example of how the extraterritoriality reaches, how, wide, how aggressive it is. So that, that concerns um, uh, industry greatly because it means that you just won't really know what the security architecture of your service is. Um, it could be that you, know, you think you know what your uh, service provider is doing with the cloud um, service they're giving you or with the um, authentication system that you've contracted uh, to outsource, but in fact, it's not what you're getting. You're getting something that's got national security or, or the federal police in there taking a feed or uh, installing software you haven't seen. So are these are these the biggest issues that you have with the Act. Have you got uh, bigger concerns with it as well, or is that that about it? Uh, no, there's a there's a list. So so at the at the top level, as I said, damage damaging um, encryption and security. Second level, not being able to manage the architecture of your service. Another issue is uh, not being able to be transparent with your customers and tell them that um, the device has been compromised. The provisions have uh, powers to cover up what's been done and conceal it for good reason, but nevertheless, that's a consequence. Um, then there's um, uh, concern about um, the extraterritorial implications and the implications for industry. If, uh, if you know being in Australia will subject you to these notices in an enforceable way, why wouldn't you put your services offshore and just not have to deal with this as an issue? So it seems to provide a disincentive for putting um, information in Australia and certainly would um, uh, add to any disincentive that a foreign government or foreign authority might have for putting information in Australia because it would be um, accessible. So the extraterritorial, sorry, you're saying that it's extraterritorial, so if you do something overseas that breaches this bill, then you're liable to it. So how, do, how are you helped by moving your, your um, activities offshore? Uh, well, it can't be enforced if you're offshore is, is the likely outcome. Um, the, this is going to be one of the interesting things that plays out with the legislation. If uh, the uh, agent, if an agency decides to serve a notice on an entity which is offshore, and the entity doesn't want to comply with that notice for one reason or another, um, then um, what will the government do next? Um, there isn't a mechanism whereby um, a punitive uh, measure can be um, uh, enforced offshore. Um, there are there are uh, there are treaties for enforcing civil uh, claims in jurisdictions that share common uh, values and have a similar court system, but a penalty imposed by government you can't really recover through the um, system in place in another jurisdiction. So what the government often does in these situations is um, uh, it, um, uh, it chooses not to uh, be embarrassed by sending the notice in the first place mainly. Um, uh, in other cases, it writes letters. You know, the, the uh, Privacy Act has extraterritorial uh, application. So does the Competition and, and Consumer Law. And, and Sex Crimes Tourism Act and Overseas Bribery Foreign Officials. That, that's, that's right. So, you know, there um, you get, um, you can rely on the MLAT treaties, the Mutual Assistance and, and uh, Mutual Legal Assistance Treaty Framework. And, um, and then the Foreign Law Enforcement Agency acts to uh, enable you to enforce your law. Uh, but in a situation like this where you're talking about uh, surveillance under Australian law, it'll be interesting to see if, if that um, could possibly work. And um, uh, on my reading of it, the MLAT Treaty doesn't extend to enforcement of these kind of laws in a foreign jurisdiction as it's currently drafted. Yeah, Charles, that, you yeah, had something to add there? Just a question of clarification from Patrick here. Um, so would it be correct to say that or ask, is this the 
first of its kind in the world, this type of law. There's a, a law in the UK called the Investigatory Powers Act, which is a precursor to this uh, legislation. Um, one of the points we've been making to the government is that the UK government took a long time consulting on that law, and it's been moderated by um, uh, the um, uh, civil rights framework which exists in the EU in a way that ours hasn't. Um, that legislation uh, does have similar kinds of powers in it, um, but they um, are uh, exercised not solely at the discretion of the agency, they're exercised um, in conjunction with some, with some judicial oversight. So um, uh, it's not completely analogous, but it goes in the same direction. The government in the UK, like the Australian government, is trying to address the problem that um, uh, a lot more people are sending their messages using over-the-top um, systems and using encrypted apps and so on, and the government is trying to find a way um, to stop that going dark, or allowing them to um, get access to those communications in the same way that they get access to traditional telephone communication. Okay, I'm an Australian business. You know, what type of business will have to will have obligations under this legislation, and what will they need to do? The range of businesses. Um, the Act has a concept called a designated communications provider. And uh, that describes um, at length <laughs> businesses that are involved in systems dealing with um, management of information and uh, communications. A standout um, definition is the definition of electronic service, which includes just about any kind of online service that involves um, dealing with um, information in and out. Um, it, on one view, it could capture just any online portal serving a consumer, um, but it certainly does capture all sort of webmail systems and um, and uh, you know cloud information storage systems. So, um, to answer your question, um, if, if what you're doing um, supports uh, involves the management of movement of information or supports anybody who is involved in that industry, then you're probably within the scope of this legislation. Even if what you're doing is a service, or if it's software, or if it's updating, or if it's installing and connecting, even if you have a facility, um, uh, if you're manufacturing a component, um, you know, if you're providing uh, updates, it, it catches you. What should you do? Um, you, you'll get a notice <laughs> from... If from, you do the wrong thing? Uh, no, no. Well, that's this is one of the contentious things about the legislation that, um, you know, the, the um, legislation binds the service provider and the target is a third party. So really dealing with the way this legislation is formed is our only opportunity to look at the sort of civil rights and um, control framework around the legislation. Um, the, um, so you'll get the notice. Um, the, the, uh, in fact, I, I should take a step back. First, you might get a request because one of the powers in the Act is to issue you with a, a request and you can um, consider the request and decide you want to cooperate. If you do that, um, you can be paid for your cooperation. You can't make a profit, but you can get your costs and you are indemnified um, for third-party claims um, that, as you're not, sorry, you're not indemnified, you're immune from third-party claims that might arise um, from your cooperation. Um, 
one of the significant things about the Act is, of course, you can only be immune from liability under Australian law <laughs> if the consequence uh, is to cause some liability under a, under a contract you've signed outside Australia or um, uh, some other uh, a law that's imposed on you outside Australia, then uh, that, wouldn't, um, that, that immunity won't be of any value. Um, so that's the first thing, cooperation. The second one is a technical assistance notice. One of the amendments that went in at the last minute, thank goodness, was an obligation to consult with you before you get one of those. So you'll be approached by the relevant agency. Um, the agency will say what they have in mind and then you'll get this formal notice which will direct you to do certain things or disclose certain information. Um, the notice um, can tell you to disclose technical information. It can tell you to turn off a system of um, uh, electronic protection. It can tell you to um, uh, install software or a device and it can tell you, uh, amongst other things, and it can tell you to turn off, uh, to cover up what you've done so it can't be, be, be seen. Um, uh, that's a technical assistance notice. Um, in, in fact, in the bill, there's not much difference between the powers of a technical assistance notice and, a and the third one, which is a technical capability notice. A technical capability notice, according to the explanatory memorandum, is about making you build something new. And um, if, you're, uh, if you get one of those notices, first you'll be consulted to start with, but you can then call out the agency and say, look, I want a third party to um, assess whether or not this uh, notice is within the scope of the bill, in which case um, there's a process for a determination to be made um, by an independent third party. Um, although there's some concern that the qualifications that that person would have will only exist in the higher levels of government, so you might not be able to get completely away from the government. Um, but then you get a notice which says you must build a capability to um, enable information to be accessed um, in some way. So you do that, and um, the information that you provide, um, which might be you know, highly sensitive business information, is protected by provision in the statute. Um, and the next step will be that you um, get a uh, warrant or an authorization. So a warrant would say, give me this content, um, this communication or this information, and the authorization might say, give me the metadata that's associated with that service. Um, it's been said that one of the reasons that this, one of the ways this power might be used is to get access to the GPS data that exists on apps and mobile phones, because that's far more location accurate than you could currently get with um, you know, triangulating mobile phone towers. Um, so you'll get that and, uh, and then you'll, you'll need to comply. Somewhere in the process you can um, uh, request a payment for the cost of complying with the notice and there's a system which can, leads to, if you can't agree, leads to arbitration of the amount that you'll be paid. You can imagine the government will be very generous in their payments. <laughs> <laughs> you look, you're entitled to your costs of, of compliance but not to make a profit. Um, so that sounds okay, but it could not be okay if it's a huge demand on the resources in your business and also a huge distraction from your day-to-day -day affairs. You know, we're in the, most businesses want to make money and this isn't going to be something that they can use to make money. So is the, do businesses need to be doing something to prepare for this or they just sit back and wait and see whether they'll be subject to a notice? Um, I think they, they, um, it would be prudent to be looking at... Um, what information you have and how um, uh, it might um, be required by law enforcement or national security and considering um, what the implications that getting such a notice would have on your, on your business. Um, 
uh, you know, it, it, at least then you'll be in a position to um, to um, know what to expect and um, and to consider um, you know whether it has any strategic implications for the way you deliver your services and you design them. That's right. So if you're designing something, if you make it really hard to get back into, it could be more costly for you to agree to addressing one of these these orders. That's right. That's right. And, and you know, the concern has been expressed that, you know, some customers won't want to use a business which is subject to, to these laws because if the business was located offshore or operating somewhere else, it, um, it wouldn't be subject to these laws. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, the, um, the purpose of our um, law enforcement agencies and our national security agencies is to fight organised crime and protect us from terrorism primarily. So um, it's hard to be... Uh, I don't think anybody in any submission has been opposing the general objection, objective um, of the legislation, which is to, you know, make those... Um, make the fight against uh, crime and terrorism more effective. That's right, and we've yep. certainly been supportive of that, Charles. Patrick, another area obviously noted in your bio is privacy. And privacy has been a hot issue this year. Right? There's been the notifiable, notifiable data breach scheme, and obviously overseas it's been the EU general data protection regulation. Um, has any thought or consideration been given, I guess, in, in terms of this bill and the legislation where it's at, in, in terms of how there's a potential conflict of laws in that situation, in your opinion? Uh, no, the Privacy Act um, has um, exclusions for um, uh, you know, um, legal, uh, national security and law enforcement um, uh, investigations in the ordinary course as a, a generally permitted situation. There are exceptions um, expressly uh, stated in the data, mandatory data notification provisions and, else, and um, also um, preserving rights of access under, um, uh, under lawful warrants. So in, in that way, um, it's not consistent, although, I mean, it was um, one of the things that was in play with the negotiation of this legislation um, and, um, uh, you know, was the subject of consultation by, um, by industry that um, the way that uh, uh, the carve-out to protect um, existing um, security and authentication systems is crafted is, is most imperfect and uh, the way they've amended it at the last minute is even worse and uh, um, so on the one hand they've um, they've tried to prevent they've, they've defined um, a requirement which um, is intended to protect our privacy by saying that um, a notice or request can't be used to um, uh, weaken um, a, a systemic or create a systemic vulnerability or weakness in a form of electronic protection. That's the phrase used in the Act. They've now defined that in a way which seems to leave a hole big enough to drive a truck through. And um, uh, there are some Labor Party amendments on the table which they've promised to consider on the first day back next year, which would sort of bring that back and help protect um, uh, systems. But on the on the other hand, during the negotiation of the bill, there was also concern expressed that um, the framework would allow the government to get metadata um, about individuals without any kind of lawful notice or warrant. And that was based on some provisions in the Act that said so long as what you're asking people to do would assist in the issue of a warrant, then you could, it was completely allowed. And um, the, um, 
the existing provision that requires telcos and uh, carriage service providers um, to uh, cooperate with law enforcement is the basis on which all the metadata is handed over. So you look at this obligation to assist with an open-ended requirement, it seems like they could just request on their own discretion a notice to really see a large body of metadata in order to isolate um, a suspect. And that would be a terrible um, dim diminution of people's privacy, I think. Um, however, the provision went in in the last minute to bring that back. Um, and uh, if we just get this provision about what it means to create a systemic vulnerability in a form of electronic protection, I think people will be more comfortable. Yeah, and I think that leads to another point, and it's not just about privacy, but it's also about commercially sensitive information. I suppose if there's a systemic weakness that could impact on the broader business information um, beyond beyond just a personal data as well. It's one of those un, un, untested issues maybe at the moment. Look, uh, look I think that uh, that's right. I mean, um, uh, you know, I mentioned a minute ago that um, the way that they've amended the definitions of systemic weakness has created a very large hole. And, and the point you make is, is right on that. Um, uh, essentially, um, they say that uh, in order for you to create a systemic weakness, you have to damage a whole class of technology. <laughs> and what does that mean? You know, you have to damage every digital device versus every analog device. <laughs> you have to damage, you know, it's just amazing that that would come in at the last minute and so, so that nobody could comment on it and get it um, corrected. Um, but uh, that's, that's the first thing, if, um, uh, that you mustn't damage uh, the whole class of technology. Um, but that requirement doesn't apply, uh, and there's a special formula of words here that I won't get quite right, but that doesn't apply if they um, are targeting, um, uh, if they have a target technology that's associated with a particular individual. And then um, they must uh, not make any change which would um, uh, release secure information um, uh, to a third party. And um, the problem with uh, that formulation is that it, it, it doesn't sort of address a number of other things that could happen, like rendering the authentication system uh, ineffective, uh, or you know, making it fail, or making a system fail. And it, doesn't, um, and it assumes that information is held um, rather than information can be collected from the system itself and about the person that's there. So um, this whole area you know, needs to be, when you're trying to write laws about it, you need to be working very carefully around exactly what your aim is. And uh, there is some real concern that um, uh, that framework leaves a hole for um, uh, the changes that might be made by these agencies having quite detrimental effects on the security of information. Um, and it's not just, as you say, about personal information. It's about uh, trade secrets and, and uh, you know, um, business um, information. Now you mentioned um, uh, amendments that Labor's putting through. Going back over the very long list of concerns you've got, are there any other amendments that we should be pushing in the new year to try and get some, some changes when, when Parliament resumes for a very, very brief time before the election? Um, that are drop-dead kind of issues that they really should address? Uh, look, I, I haven't been through all of the Labor amendments um, to, to know what's in there and what's not um, at the time of speaking, but um, if I was um, uh, uh, rating um, the uh, requests from various parties who are engaged with the information, at one level there are people who are still saying, look, this whole thing is a bad idea, 
we're better to leave this part of the market alone um, and use other means. Um, uh, then there's, um, I think there's a quite a strong argument that the, they only need one of the two notices they've got in the bill, um, the technical assistance notice and the technical capability notice. Um, uh, the only difference between them is what the explanatory memorandum says. Um, but uh, the capability notice has this extra mechanism where you can call out the agency and just test whether or not what it's doing would damage your um, your systems of authentication and protection. And um, the, the technical assistance notice doesn't have that. Um, and they both have their powers expressed the same way. So a good argument would be to delete that from the Act completely. Um, a third one that's quite high on the list is putting in judicial oversight for the issues of these notices. The um, uh, the, the framework, um, a bit like the mandatory data retention framework, allows agencies to ask for these notices um, by having a bureaucrat form an opinion um, uh, that it's reasonable and necessary outside the context of any warrant or particular target being in place. So it's, you know, you can really just form a view at large that if I could get access to that information, it might at some time be useful to me later, or it could help me protect the community. And with a broad view like that, I can then get disclosure of proprietary business information. I can play around with other people's systems. I can install software and devices without it being tested or controlled. Uh, there's no requirement under the Act for any of that. Um, and, and so, it would be better if the decision for the issue of those notices was made with judicial oversight. So the agency needed to line up its evidence, make its case, give it to a third party for a determination, and, and have that third party decide that this did satisfy the criteria. That would add uh, um, a lot of comfort, I think, to the parties that um, are concerned about the legislation. Just a closing, uh, we'll just wrap up in a minute, but just a practical example that's come up is a WhatsApp. You know, a lot of terrorists, air quotation marks, use WhatsApp. Is this, does this give them, the government, access to that? Is that, that sort of one of their main drivers or could they have done that anyway? Um, look, it's a question that requires specific knowledge of the layout of WhatsApp and its operations and I, I don't have that. Um, but um, what this bill could do, if WhatsApp had, uh, was in the jurisdiction or, uh, or not, um, the government can send it a note saying, please tell us uh, how your, send us a, a notice um, saying, uh, we want to see your security architecture and, uh, and we want to see, uh, we want you to share with us a particular mechanism for encrypting or securing the messages. And when they've got that information, they can then issue a, a, another notice requiring that this software be installed or, or that, um, uh, uh, that device installed and then they can deliver a warrant saying we want this information and we know you can give it to us because it's uh, it's there. Uh, if WhatsApp are entirely offshore then um, WhatsApp will look at this notice and say um, uh, uh, do I want to comply with this? Uh, if I don't what will happen? Um, and the answer to that question is um, that uh, they could be subject, they would have to not appear in Australia to answer um, any sort of enforcement proceedings and that wouldn't be a good look. Mm. Um, but um, uh, at the end of the day, the Australian government also has its uh, powers under 313 of the Telco Act where it can ask uh, service providers to block access 
to the, anything on the internet. But we're not China to. yet. <laughs> well, we're not there yet, but the power is there. It's, they're used currently for the Interpol list and they're, um, they're, the power is used now through the Copyright Act for blocking uh, copyright infringing sites. Um, and that sort of big stick sits in the background. So, um, yeah, these powers could be used um, to ask WhatsApp to facilitate access to their messages. We better wrap up now, but any final comment there, Charles? I oh, just that should have said at the outset, if we haven't mentioned before, I think everyone shares the same value, whether you're in government, industry, civil society, that we all have an interest in tackling terrorism and not having that happen or even other serious crimes. So sometimes that message gets lost, I think, in this debate and particularly for, for, from those who see us raising what we think are legitimate concerns about the bill. And I just want to make it clear, it's not an issue about whether you're on team anti-terrorism or not, or team anti-serious crimes or not. It's really trying to find something that could help government at the same time ensure that industry, as well as broader uh, community, views are taken into account and, and, and done in a proper sort of way. And that's why we've been engaged in particularly uh, with Patrick and others in various industry associations of civil society groups to, to make sure that, that that's taken into account. Great. Any final con comment, Patrick? I just want to agree with that. I think that um, uh, it's, a, uh, it's a new piece of legislation. When it was first introduced to Parliament, it had a nine-month sunrise period, and that was only six weeks ago, eight, uh, two months ago now maybe. Um, suddenly at the last minute, uh, it, uh, that um, sunrise period was removed. It became law on the weekend, <laughs> you know, day, a day after it was passed Parliament. Um, that's my main concern, that uh, these powers are very intrusive. They're very new and they reach into parts of industry that aren't subject to these kind of compulsory assistance powers. And um, we need to take all the care we can to get them uh, right and make sure that the interests of industry and the Australian economy at large are not uh, damaged by a, a rush to, um, to legislate. Fantastic. I'll wrap it up there. Now, if you want any further information, I think probably best to email charles, charles.hoang at aigroup.com.au. I just wanted to thank Patrick Fair from Partner at Baker McKenzie and Charles Wang, who's AI Group's Digital Capability and Policy Lead. And I'm Tony Melville, Head of Communications at AI Group. That's all for now. See you next time.